All right, a little leftover work from uh, last week. If you will, turn to Acts 14, verse 21, and then direct your attention to the map on the screen. We're going to just review quickly what we've looked at so far in the first missionary journey. As you recall, uh, they left Antioch of Syria, which we called home base. They go over to the island of Cyprus, go to Salamis, Paphos, and then uh, into the land of Pamphylia and Galatia. Most of the narrative talks about the work that they did in Galatia, in Antioch of Pisidia, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And you'll see those on the map here. Now when we get to Derbe in verse 20 and 21 of this chapter, not much is said about that area, only that uh, there are many that believe there in in the area, made many disciples in verse 21. Now they're at the end of their route and they're going to go back through those cities that they visited initially on the first journey. And why is it they want to go back to those cities? They want to go back, build them up, don't they? Edify these saints and then, as we'll see later on, to establish elders in those churches. So let's begin at verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, being Derbe, they made many disciples there. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, confirming these souls, building them up, exhorting them in the faith that that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. See, they're telling them that they will enter the kingdom of God, but they will do so with much persecution we've seen. Recently, some of these people, some of the disciples that they have seen have visited something very gruesome. What was that? That Paul endured, even in this chapter, stoning. So when they go back through these cities, and probably that stoning, probably the word of that became known throughout all of this region, I'm sure. And they go back through these cities confirming their faith and telling them that through many tribulations they must enter the kingdom of God. We've seen many tribulations already so far in the book of Acts that the saints are having to deal with one after another, after another. And then we see on the heels of that, it said, but the people were joyful, or they were built up, or they were increased, they were multiplied. So throughout all these roadblocks that we've seen the church of God still stands and still thrives. Verse 23, when they had appointed for them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they had believed. A couple of things to note about this particular verse. Sometimes people wonder if a church can exist without elders. Is it possible for a church to exist without elders? Obviously, from this verse, we see there was some period of time where these churches existed without elders. And uh, we also see that same idea in the book of Titus, Titus 1 verse 5. Titus was told to go to the island of Crete and establish elders in those churches in that island. So there was obviously some period of time and perhaps even a greater period of time there than we see here that uh, that the churches went without elders. And certainly that's not a good ideal. That's not God's ideal for a church. Thus the reason they established the elders here. So they continue in verse 24, 25, going, making their way back through their route. They go back through pretty much the same route, as you can see on the screen, that they had taken when they uh, 
went on their journey. Now let's pick up back at verse 27. At verse 27, we're back at the home base of Antioch of Syria. And what do they do when they get to Antioch? They report back to the church there. Verse 27, read with me. We're at uh, chapter 14, verse 27. When they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all things that God had done with them, and that he had opened a door of faith unto the Gentiles. So I think we can see here in this verse a, an example of a church being gathered together to learn about the work of another location. Sometimes we have preachers that come in and visit that we support. They come in and we listen to the work that they have done. We have gathered the church together to listen to that. And I think this is one of those verses that we would go to to see the example for doing such a thing and and having them rehearse the things that they have done, their work. And here he says, notice that they had opened a door of faith unto the Gentiles and they tarried no little time with the disciples there in Antioch. Any thoughts or comments on chapter 14 at this point? I did not give you, you will notice I did not give you a list of questions or any homework per se, but you do have homework to do. We're going to do some memory work. I think the book of Acts lends itself to a type of study where you can memorize what's in each chapter, and that helps you to remember the book a little bit better. Uh, it lends itself to that more than some books do. And for, we're going to break this down into sections though. I don't want you to have to memorize 28 chapters all at once. So let's do this at, in segments. And we'll use, as we've already used, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 as our outline. We're starting at Jerusalem and that's what we have here, the chapter review. So if we take chapter 1, the ascension We see the ascension of Jesus, the choosing of Matthias as an apostle. What would be Acts chapter 2? What would you say in a nutshell, if you could say one or two or three words that would summarize that chapter? I think I hear it, but I... Okay, beginning of the church. Beginning of the church. What about chapter 3? Okay, the lame man's healed, the cripple is cured, and what kind of, not only that, but what does that cause? That precipitates the, the apostles being charged and, and uh, arrested. The lame man is healed. Something to help us memorize each chapter. So you write these down, work on them, we'll work on them together. Once you memorize these seven, throw that piece of paper away and start over again. And let's, let's work on that each, each week. Chapter 4, the apostles, they are arrested, they're threatened. That is what was uh, somewhat of a result of what happened in chapter 3. So that kind of helps us remember those two chapters together. What about chapter 5? What happens there? Ananias and Sapphira, and then later in the chapter, the apostles are beaten and charged uh, even more uh, strictly. Chapter 6, the widows are neglected, and we deal with that issue, that problem, and the church is able to continue on. 
and thrive past that point. What about chapter 7? Stephen being stoned. Okay, so we've already worked through the first seven chapters there. And this is in Jerusalem. Remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8. We're using that as our outline. And we're looking at places. Jerusalem. Then Judea and Samaria as we expand further out. And then as we expand even further out than that, what are we looking at? Past Judea and Samaria, we're going to the world, the uttermost parts of the earth. And we'll, we'll look at those as the weeks go by here. Something I want you to uh, continue to think about when we study Acts. Acts is, many, many books do this, but I think Acts in particular lends itself also to the study of looking at people, places, and events. When we think about, when I th- say the word Mars Hill, what, do you th- what chapter would you think about and what event happened at Mars Hill? But Paul preached there on Mars Hill in Athens, didn't he? And he spoke to an ungodly people. Uh, if I say Felix... If I say the character Felix, when we leave off, what kind of condition is Felix in? Felix the governor. Okay. He had some interest, but not enough, it seems, to obey, did he? And these are places and people and events, PPE, I call it. You've heard of PPE lately. But people, places, and events, think about all that you're studying and think about a person or a place or an event, something that will cause you to or help you to remember that area, that chapter. And also something else I want you to keep in mind as we particularly get into this section of the book of Acts, we're looking at as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and especially when it gets to the uttermost parts of the earth, All the known Roman Empire, basically, we're dealing with a quite a mix of people. It was Jews at first, and then we had Gentiles, and now we're beginning to see the pagan world, the all the Gentile world, and Roman-related things that we're going to see, and this pagan idea that's going to be dealt with by Paul and and his helpers as he continues on. So think about that that they're dealing with as well. All right, let's get into Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, it might be looked at as a sort of an isolated chapter, maybe a standalone chapter in some ways. And sometimes we read it with that idea in mind, but I want you to read that a little bit more and put it in the fabric of the entire book of Acts, all the problems we've dealt with so far, and look at this issue as something that has to be dealt with and something that can be dealt with as well. Acts 15 verse 1, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren saying, except you be circumcised. After the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here is the problem or the question. Judaizers come down, that is from elevation to from the area of Judea down to Antioch. We would look at it on a map as being north, but it's down in elevation. So they come down from 
the area of Jerusalem and Judea, and they bring with them this idea of circumcision. And here's what they're proposing. Believe and be baptized, then be circumcised, and you will be saved. Let's look at it again. Verse 1. Except you be circumcised after the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Is that what the Bible says? It is it is not what the Bible says, is it? We can turn to passages such as Mark 16, verse 16, and basically it says the Word of God is that we believe, we are baptized, and we are saved. To add circumcision in there as a requirement is what the Judaizers were doing, those that that would say, well, that's okay that we preach the gospel, but we cannot neglect the customs of Moses. We cannot neglect the law of Moses. And so Paul, Barnabas, verse 2, had no small dissension and questioning with these brethren. They appointed that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. And you might make a... Uh, middle note here at least to go to the book of Galatians. The first five chapters of the book of Galatians deal with the same type of problem. Same type of problem with Judaizers requiring circumcision on those that were Christians, saying that you must do this to be saved. Now we have Paul here having a questioning, no small dissension and a conflict with these brethren. And it's up to the brethren, they decide, uh, well, why don't you go up to Jerusalem and meet with the apostles and elders there about this question? Is there any, does Paul need to go? Does he have a need to go to go to learn more about circumcision? Paul has not that need, does he? And we might look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, when, if we say that that's a parallel account of this, which it probably is. Galatians 2, verse 2 indicates, Paul says, I found out by revelation that I must go and study this with the brethren. Paul had not a need or requirement to go so he might learn more fully the word of God. He didn't need that. But he did need to go through this exercise, if you will, for the sake of the brethren. See how Paul is the, the great apostle that he is, though he is that, he still saw the need to go through this exercise in humility, in respect, and deal with a matter in question that needs to be dealt with for the sake of all the brethren, and not just those in Antioch. This would affect those in Jerusalem as well, and we're going to see in the following chapters it's going to affect all those cities that he would go to. It would help them out as well. So Paul didn't have to do this. Verse 3, they therefore, when they went on their way by the church, passed through Phoenicia, Samaria, as they were going down to, or up to Jerusalem rather, they rehearsed what they had the successes they had in verse 3 with the Gentiles, and it caused great joy unto the brethren. When they were come to Jerusalem, they, received, they were received of the church, and the apostles and elders rehearsed all these things. But in verse 5, what happens? Opposition. The Pharisees are there. 
And no doubt this is probably a pool of those that had uh, left and gone to Antioch and caused problems. It is needful, they say, to circumcise them and to charge them to keep the law of Moses. This is basically what you saw in verse 1. Verse 1 and verse 5 really are teaching the same false doctrine that you must circumcise. All right, now the meeting or the discussion begins and the apostles and elders, verse 6, are gathered together to consider this matter. There had been much questioning. Peter rises up and he says, Brethren, you know that a good while ago God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. We saw that in Acts chapter 10, didn't we? By uh, Cornelius was the subject there in that chapter. Verse 8, God who knows the heart, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us. So when Paul preached the gospel to Cornelius, what was it that he saw there that was out of the ordinary? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working there to confirm that the Gentiles are accepted just as we were back in Acts chapter 2, Peter says. He goes on to say, verse 9, that he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why should we, why, or why should you make a trial, make trial of God that you should put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord in like manner as they. So when we look at the Jews, when we look at the apostles and those on the day of Pentecost, how were they saved? And we compare Acts chapter 10 and how Cornelius was saved and his household Is there one iota of difference? Absolutely not. In both chapters, the Holy Spirit is coming to, and and Peter says here, the result is we necessarily infer, we come to this conclusion here, verse 9 and 10, that there is no distinction. That's what he said, verse 9 and 10. There's no distinction between them and us. In other words, they're not saved a different way than we are. We're all saved in the exact same way. And Peter says here, we can necessarily come to the conclusion, you see where I'm headed with this? We can necessarily infer that they are saved in like manner as we are because the Holy Spirit confirmed that they received that in Acts chapter 10. And we can see in these, these uh, addresses here by the brethren and by the apostles here parallels to how we come to understand the pattern of authority. Now let's continue on. Verse 12 and 13, Barnabas and Paul speak up. Rehearsing the signs and the wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles through them. You studied that last week in Acts 13 and 14. They went to the Gentile world in Acts 13 and 14, and Barnabas and Paul here are rehearsing what, basically, I think, they're rehearsing the first journey. Going back through that journey and saying, look at what they did. They received the word. They believed. Their their signs and wonders by the Holy Spirit wrought and done among these Gentiles that we preached to And that, again, is the Holy Spirit confirming that these people have received salvation. 
So there we would call this the example. Barnabas and Paul are rehearsing the signs and wonders wrought. That is an apostolic example that he is presenting to them. Verse 13, they held their peace. James answered and said, brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, or Peter, had rehearsed now how first God visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets. So he's going in a little bit different direction. And you see each of these three go into different directions to come to the same conclusion. They look at it from a different angle to get to the same conclusion. James here is going to go all the way back to what? The book of Amos. The book of Amos. And what was it that Amos said about the Gentiles? They would be included. Verse 16, after these things I will return, I will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen. Now David's not a Gentile. But his point in Amos uh, 9 and verse 11 and 12 of that chapter He says, I will build again the tabernacle of David. For a while, the the lineage and the throne of David went into, uh, it, it can be traced, but it was non-existent as a kingly throne. And he says there, I will build again the tabernacle of David. This also by, by, I guess, incidentally, you might keep up with the second Samuel chapter seven prophecy of David, we're going to trace that prophecy throughout the Old Testament and try to find out where that's fulfilled, that a throne would, uh, the throne would be occupied by someone and their kingdom would last forever. Now, we're still looking for that, although the kingdom of David is uh, pretty much demolished. So his point is, go back to Amos 9, we're still looking for that. And this prophecy in Amos 9 is, I will build again the tabernacle of David. It's fallen. I will build it again. And verse 17, note that the residue of men may seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called. So whenever that happens, the Gentiles are also part of that kingdom. And James concludes, makes the necessary uh, point here that This is a direct statement, a direct command, if you will, a direct statement from the Word of God that the tabernacle of David is not demolished, it is to rise again, and that not only will it rise again, but that when it does, the Gentiles, verse 17, will be included in that kingdom. It's a direct statement from the Old Testament, and James says he's applying it here. From Amos chapter 9, verse 19, wherefore my judgment, this is still James talking, wherefore my judgment is that we trouble them not from among the Gentiles that those that turn to God. So we've looked at Peter, his case in point is Cornelius, going back to Acts chapter 10. We've looked at Paul and Barnabas, they looked at the example of those in Acts 13 and 14. And I guess implied in that rehearsing, he's saying that we didn't command these people to be circumcised. We were preaching to a Gentile world. It's a mix of Jews Jews and Gentiles, but those Gentiles 
when we preached to them, they were not required to be circumcised. See that in Acts 13 and 14. And then James, he says the Old Testament scriptures confirm that the Gentiles would be part of the kingdom, that they would be included in the kingdom of Christ as well. Verse 19, wherefore my judgment is that we trouble them not, that from among those people that are Gentiles that turn to God, but that we write to them, here's, here's a little change, verse 20, trouble them not, don't require them to be circumcised, verse 20, don't throw out everything though, don't throw out everything that you would find in the Old Testament. See, James is going back to the Old Testament, and he said, yes, we need to toss out the law of Moses, as it were, and the requirement of circumcision here, but don't go all the way, don't be so zealous as to throw out the entire Old Testament. Verse 20, that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. These are areas that... are part and parcel to the idea of idolatry. Keeping idolatry, that would be something that uh, commonly known in in those practices. Pollution of idols, fornication involved in the worship of idols, eating blood, eating things that have no, no consideration for the blood at all in their sacrifices. For Moses... From generations of old hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So I think by verse 21, he's saying, don't throw out the law of Moses either. I thought you just said throw out the law of Moses. No, we're not throwing out the, we're throwing out the requirements to be saved, but it still needs to be studied, I think is what he's saying. Verse 21 You need to still study those scriptures, those Old Testament scriptures. Don't throw out the Old Testament. And if if we look at chapter, uh, look at verse 20, if we want to talk about blood and we're going to go all the way back in the Old Testament, how far would I go to, to understand God's law and requirement about blood and the partaking of blood? How far back would I go? Noah, Genesis chapter 9, God gave a decree to Noah about blood, don't, you know, don't eat of the blood, the life is in the blood, and so we might say that he's going back to say that just because we do not require circumcision and don't require the keeping of the law of Moses does not mean that we go back to laws and decrees that God has already established about blood, for instance, and about fornication and things of that nature. So we're not tossing all that out. James says we still need to keep those, and particularly as it relates to this world that they are preaching in and teaching in, this has a lot to do with the idolatrous practices that they would see in in that world in that day and time. All right, we'll pause here for any thoughts or comments you have so far. Anyone? Yes. You could look all the way back to uh, God's promises to Abraham, the three promises, the land promise, the nation promise, but then he said all nations will be blessed 
in your seed. Of course, mm -hmm. Galatians 3 tells us that's Jesus. So all the way back there, it tells us that the gospel is going to be for the Gentiles also. Now, that doesn't deal with the law and that kind of thing. But you can see all the way back to the beginning, the gospel was always intended for everybody, not just the Jews. Very good. And even Peter on the day of Pentecost said, Acts 2, verse 39, this promise is to you and all your children and all those that are afar off, all those that are Gentiles, those many nations. This promise is to those. It took them a while to come to that understanding, but uh, they finally seems to uh, finally get to that point where they understand it a little bit better. Yes. I just wanted to say this is the first sign of a kind of false prophecy, false teaching coming into the church. And the apostles and the elders are handling it appropriately because here's this person, these people saying one thing and it's contradicting God's law. And it's the first, it's one of the first times that the apostles meet together and say, look, this is wrong. The Gentiles don't know it's wrong, but we need to teach them that it's wrong. Because you have to understand the Gentiles were not really familiar with the old law like the Jewish people were, because they were they were not a part of that. So they did not know whether that was a direct commandment or not. So for them to meet and them to agree that it is not necessary and that this is not godly, that is a good thing, and that's to teach us today. If somebody comes in here pre preaching something that they should not be preaching, we need to address that and we need to Okay, that good. Up. That gets to the second point I want to make as we, we've, we've already looked at initially that Paul, it wasn't that he had to go, but he had to go. It was necessary. He didn't need the uh, better understanding. And on the heels of this discussion that takes place, to your point, and let's apply it today, can we go through exercises such as this, or should we? When false doctrine appears and infiltrates the church, how do we deal with it? You can say, well, just let, it, let the elders take care of it, and we'll just go on our way. Well, no. Let's just don't do that entirely. But it needs to be dealt with, doesn't it? And we can go through that same exercise today as they did. Can we come to a conclusion in a similar fashion as Peter and Barnabas and Paul and James? Can we use that same process today? Yes, we can. Now, I think that's one of the reasons this chapter is here, to show us how to deal with false doctrine in a church that stirs up dissension and causes problems, you can deal with it. Do we have to have the Holy Spirit? We can say, well, Paul had the Holy Spirit. Peter had the Holy Spirit. They had the Holy Spirit. Don't we have the Holy Spirit? Sure do. And we can come to the answers that we need through the process exactly using the same process that they did in Acts chapter 15. And we can deal with those problems and we can come to a conclusion if we will. 
Verse 22. Well, before we get to verse 22, let me do this real quick. Here was the question posed in verse 1 and even in verse 5. Are we to believe and be baptized? And if I'm a Gentile, am I required to be circumcised to be saved? And the answer to that, I think we found, is no. They said, do not put a yoke on anyone, anyone. In other words, we believe and we're baptized in order to be saved. We cannot add anything into that. And that is their conclusion from the time they get to the end of the discussion, verse 21. Now, the end of the, the rest of the chapter... Verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose out men of their company and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas and Silas, chief men among the brethren. Now I want you to think about another incidental here that at the beginning of the chapter, Paul had had, uh, drawn a line in the sand and said, I am not going to Jerusalem. I know what God's revelation is. It might not have been that he would have ever uh, hooked up with Silas as he does here. And then he takes him on his second journey. Just an incidental there, I'll throw in for free. Verse 23, they wrote thus by them, the apostles and elders, brethren unto the brethren who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as you have heard that certain who came out from us troubled you with words, subverting your souls to whom we gave no commandment, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose out men and send them unto you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus. We have sent them therefore, <clears throat> sent therefore Judas and Silas, who themselves also shall tell you <clears throat> the same things by word of mouth. Notice that they're sending a letter. They're sending brethren that can confirm these words with Barnabas and Paul, namely Judas and Silas. And these two brethren can tell you by their own mouth what decision we made and what answer we concluded. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from idols, from blood, and this is what we saw in verse 20, and from things strangled, from fornication, and from those and from which you, if you keep yourselves, it shall be well with you. Fare you well. So keep yourselves from these. Do not require or do not compel one to be circumcised. Galatians 2 talks about Titus. Titus was not even compelled to be circumcised. But yet in Acts chapter 16, the first few verses there, we'll see next week that Timothy is circumcised. And he's circumcised by the encouragement of Paul himself. So has Paul waffled on this idea? Is Paul going back and forth on this idea? According to the whims of man? No. But whatever suits and benefits those hearers is what we'll see. And we'll look at that perhaps later as we get into that chapter next week. There are some that look at this chapter and consider it a precedent for gathering together a denominational council 
or a synod or council that will determine what we think the Word of God is, and they'll come out with a decree that varies from the Word of God, and they'll use this as a basis for that type of thing. And that, that's not at all what we see here. What we see is brethren getting together to decide or to determine what the Word of God is. We've seen how they did that, the process they went through to determine what God's will already is. We saw it in Acts 2. We saw it in Acts 10, what God's will is for the Gentiles. They're simply getting together here to to better understand it, to better discuss it, and to be better able to apply that to the world that they go out into and teach and preach into. All right, verse, <coughs> verse 30 through 35. <clears throat> they go to Antioch. They deliver the letter. They gather the multitude together. They discuss the, uh, the meeting. And when those brethren read it, how did they react? Rejoiced. Rejoiced for the encouragement, for the consolation that it gave. Judas and Silas stayed with them a while confirmed these words unto them. Remember, they were to confirm these words even by mouth. They got the letter, the mouths of Judas and Silas, and then they were dismissed in peace. Paul and Barnabas tarried in Antioch, teaching and preaching with the word of the Lord with many others also. Now, we've gone through a major problem that didn't affect just one church. It affected several churches. And how does the Lord's church fare throughout it all? When faced with obstacles, when faced with the persecution we saw in Acts chapters 7 and 8, the church thrived. You have a couple in the church that are killed. Acts chapter 5, what happens to the church? It thrives. Paul is stoned in Acts chapter 14, left for dead. Let's don't let anybody hear that, because if they do, what will happen to those disciples that hear what happens to Paul, a great leader and a great apostle? What's going to happen to the church? Let's keep that quiet. What happens to the church? It thrives. One thing after another, after another, after another, and we see the Lord's church is thriving. In this chapter, they're faced with a dilemma, a false doctrine that is coming in, and how does the Lord's church deal with that dilemma? They study. They get together, and they're not getting together with an agenda to build up myself or build up another brother or make him look good and make this guy look bad. And sometimes debates lend themselves to that type of issue and that type of problem. But they're getting together in order to come together to a decision together what must be done. And then the church thrives once again. The church can make it through that, through all of these roadblocks. All right, verse 30 through 35, the book Church of uh, Antioch receives the letter. And then the last few verses here, Paul and Barnabas decide to go on another journey. After some days, verse 36, Paul and Barnabas 
say, let's go and visit the brethren in every city where we proclaim the word of God and see how they fare. So they've already been once, they've been twice, and at least they want to go back again to see and to visit and to edify and to build up. But they have a problem. They, uh, Barnabas wants to carry John Mark. Paul does not. So they have a, uh, again, no small dissension here. Verse 39, there arose a sharp contention so that they parted asunder one from the other. And Barnabas took Mark and sailed away into Cyprus. Paul chose Silas. Looking at this particular problem between two individuals, I believe really that it worked out. Look, as Paul takes Silas, he goes one direction. Barnabas takes John Mark and goes where? So how much area are we covering at this point? Twice as much? We're going in, we've got two companies now going out into the Gentile world in a concentrated, organized effort to convert people to the gospel. Sometimes we look at a sharp contention between two brethren and we just throw up our hands and, you know, that's it. And later on, even, we see that in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, what attitude did Paul begin to have at that point in his life about John Mark? He had proven himself, hadn't he? And sometimes we're faced with sharp contention, sharp disagreement, and it causes us to divide among brethren, causes a grudge to be held that cannot be forgiven. But I don't think you see that here. Rather, I would focus upon what we see as two men, two capable men, taking the gospel in two different directions, covering, covering even more territory than would have been otherwise. Sometimes it's frustrating when you have division and, and uh, contradiction. But as we've seen here, the entire church got together. They worked it out. They discussed it. They worked it out. And I can tell you this, that their goal was to know what the Word of God said. That was their goal. That's why they were able to come to the same decision, wasn't it? Because they were determined to understand what God's Word was on this matter. Any thoughts as we close now? Anything? We've got... Maybe a, a minute or so. Paul and Barnabas couldn't fix that problem in Antioch. They had to go to the source of the problem. So they went to Jerusalem where these false teachers were coming from. Mm -hmm. Another point, you've mentioned Galatians chapters 1 and 2 dealing with this same issue. Uh, these false teachers didn't deny you needed faith in God. They didn't deny you needed to repent. They didn't deny you needed to confess Jesus as the Christ. They didn't deny that you needed to be baptized. What they did was they added something else to the gospel. Mm -hmm. And there in Galatians chapter 1, he said ones that would do that would be accursed. And he described it as distorting the gospel. So you don't need to deny what the gospel said if you add to it. You're distorting the gospel. In that case, he said such a one should be a curse. So we don't want to be guilty of adding something foreign to the gospel.
2 John 9 and 10, Whoever goes onward and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. Very good. Okay. I guess we better close there.